What's up, Sank? I'm so glad to be here. Uh, I've been here before. Just really vibrant community. Lots of great conversations before and after. Really happy to be here with you all. And I'm super excited uh, about this topic, about what is the Bible. I think I have some interesting, compelling, maybe offensive things to say about that question, uh, and I'm excited to get into it. But I want to start with this idea. I think that this community is in a unique position, almost nothing like it, this community is in a unique position to, no matter what happens here, blame it on Michael Napstad. And I, I think that's a great idea. Anything that happens in your personal life, just say, you know what, I have this pastor, he abandoned me. So I, I want to start with that idea. Cramming the Bi what is the Bible into 18 minutes or whatever is a terrible idea. I'm going to do my best with it. If it goes off the rail, I want to invite you to join me in blaming Michael Napstad for wherever this thing ends up. Uh, what is the Bible is a crucial question, and I think the way that we imagine it totally changes the way that we interact with it. And part of my goal is to help you imagine the Bible in a different way. And in case this thing does go off the rails, I just want to tell you right up front, the best way to imagine the Bible is a conversation into which you are invited. And this is going to be our guiding metaphor for the next 17 minutes uh, as we unpack this. And I want to probe the idea of the Bible as a conversation, in part by referencing conversations that you might have been a part of, and to form sort of an analogy. So sometimes I'll say, maybe you've had a conversation like this, and maybe you have, hopefully you have, and we'll sort of imagine it that way. And I realized as I was going over my notes that there is a glaring omission that I want to start off with because I think it's sort of insightful. Like, how did the Bible come to be? And the story is in part like horrifyingly normal and then also just really inspiring. The Bible was written by people like you. And what they did was listen and talk with God. And God listened and talked back. And they wrote down what they said. And then they brought it into a community like this and said, this is what I think God is saying to me. And the community together went, you know what? That sounds like the God that we know. And then slowly but surely those types of statements got collected and then written down and then defended and then some statements were like no nah, that doesn't quite sound like the God that we have been talking to and so even the very way that the Bible was made is about a conversation that you are invited into and so sometimes we'll get into like how was the Bible inspired and is it infallible and I'm going to almost entirely ignore those questions uh, and give I think compelling alternatives to those kind of intellectual categories so uh, it's a conversation, you're invited to it, uh, and I think this, that this is the most helpful way to imagine the Bible, we'll get into this in a second, but I want to go next to what is it a conversation about, and there's a really great book called What is the Bible by Rob Bell, in a moment it will be on my recommended resources, uh, and it was my 2017 book of the year, I've foisted like 30 copies onto different people, hey read this, tell me what you think, it's really great, and he says this, 
the Bible is a library of books. That's his image, but mine is conversation. It's a library of books about dealing with loss and anger and transcendence and worry and empire and money and fear and stress and joy and doubt and grace and healing. And who doesn't want to talk about those? So this conversation that the Bible is about, this conversation that you are invited to, is about the deepest, most important parts of your life. And it's also about some of the most mundane and boring parts of your life. The Bible is this compelling conversation between the people who wrote it, who were a lot like us, between you and between God. I think this, my friends, is the best way to imagine God. In fact, I've heard this uh, talked about like a superpower. Like if you need discernment, if you're like, should I take this job? Should I apply for this degree program? Should I marry this person? Part of the reason the Bible exists is not that it is going to give you an answer, but that it is going to help you have a conversation about those huge things in your life. It's like the perfect person to consult at all times, and it won't give you the answer, but it will help you think in a different way about those questions. Maybe in that way, it's like you have a really great friend. Have you had this conversation with your really great friend? And they're, they don't really give you advice. They just ask you some questions, and you sort of wish. I wish this person had the answers for me. And I think sometimes we approach the Bible that way. I wish it had all the answers. I wish we didn't have to wrestle with it. I could wish I could just flip to the girlfriend or boyfriend page, and it would tell me, like, break up. Just go <laughs> ahead and end it now. And the Bible doesn't work that way. It's a conversation. It has questions for you and wants you to ask questions of it. Uh, and so I want to do a couple of things here. I want to just go through some common obstacles to participating in this conversation. And then I want to go through what I think are some great best practices for the most fruitful way to pursue this conversation. And so it's going to be like uh, kind of a few lists, and I may get lost in the numbers, um, so I get the numbers wrong. Or if you're like a person who's just going to fade in and out, this might be a good sermon for you. You can just come back at the next point. It'll be great. Uh, so I want to start with a common couple obstacles that work together. And the first one is what is sometimes called atomization, A-T-O-M-ization. And this is a philosophical thought habit where we think the best way to understand something is to break it down into the smallest parts possible. And so we've studied the natural world that way. It's been super fruitful. Break it down to an atom. Once we've learned everything there, break that atom apart to molecules and break it down to quarks or whatever you guys do. Uh, at Stanford. I don't know um, how any of that works. But atomization is this habit. We want to break things down, and we think that will help us understand it better. And so we tend to approach the Bible one verse at a time, instead of uh, a more fruitful way of taking it in much bigger chunks. You would never talk to someone else, maybe a text message, like someone breaks up with you through text message. It's maddening because it's one sentence at a time, or it's like a long book, and you're trying to scroll through it a bunch. But it's a terrible way to go about a conversation. A better way to have a conversation is in big chunks and interactions and road trips and years together. And the Bible was written that way. Breaking the Bible down into one verse at a time is using it in a way it was never intended to be used, never imagined to be used by its authors. So that, uh, you know, you don't have to abandon your favorite verse. But I do want to impress upon you that engaging with bigger chunks of the Bible is going to be a lot more fruitful for you. And the second one sort of works along with atomization, and that is literalism. I think literalism is a really dangerous idea, but before you get offended or report me to John Ortberg, I want to talk a little bit about what I think about biblical literalism. First of all, I want to say the Bible is surely, surely the highest authority in our lives. It's the conversation partner that we are supposed to be having, not something else. And remember, I imagined that we were having this conversation between the biblical author, between Jesus, and between us. It's this three-way kind of conversation. 
And so uh, I think the problem with biblical literalism is that it is a posture, it is a conversation that is sometimes like uh, a really frustrating and terrible boss. Maybe at your work, maybe growing up, you have worked at a place where you had a really terrible boss who was kind of an overly authoritative but secretly really fragile character and would come down with these really big pronouncements, really big decisions, and you would in your head be thinking, this can't be right. This guy sounds crazy. But you were terrified to ever talk about that, to ever actually question this authority figure. And I think that the posture of biblical literalism is just like this, that the Bible becomes this huge authority. We can never ask it any questions. And so instead of having a fruitful conversation, we choose to not talk with it at all. And that's sort of what happens with this terrible boss, is you would never approach them about anything. In fact, as you continued working there, you started thinking, I want to avoid this person. I want to avoid this power dynamic. I want to avoid this conversation. So I think that we can take the Bible literally. I think that it is very authoritative, but we need a better posture for having this conversation, one that we feel invited to talk back. Maybe you have had an authority figure in your life where you felt like, I can never talk back. I can never say, hey, help me see how you uh, saw those things. Why did you make this decision? Help me learn. Teach me something. And when you've been in those relationships with those authority figures, you feel like, I just can't talk. I just need to avoid this conversation at all costs. Uh, and so I think that sometimes the posture of, like, we're going to take one verse and we're going to say, this verse is the ruling authority on all things with this topic. That's not a great way to go about this conversation. That's my point. Uh, and the Bible itself actually backs me up because Satan himself is an atomizing biblical literalist. And I think it kind of blows my mind when I think that even Satan is quoting the Bible. And so in our world, when we're talking like with pop culture or with big topics, if somebody is out there quoting the Bible, that only makes them equal to Satan. It really doesn't get them anywhere. If you just quote the Bible, that really doesn't get you anywhere. It just puts you on equal, equal plane with the devil himself. Uh, from Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, we read this. Satan spoke to Jesus, saying, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And then in a different verse, On their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And there Satan is quoting the Psalms. And so as we approach the Bible and we think, You just have to find the verse, pluck it out, quote it, we're approaching this conversation in an unfruitful way in an unfruitful way. And uh, as we'll see as we get into this, um, I mean, you guys already know this stuff, that slavery, racism, objectification, subordination of women, all of these horrible isms that have ever come out into the world, all the satanic isms in the world have been used, uh, ha have been justified by one single verse or two in the Bible. And so when we get into this conversation about reading the Bible and we pluck one verse out and we say, this is what I think about it, uh, that just is not a fruitful way to read, to have this conversation. Uh, the next big obstacle that I want to talk about is what you might call the historical distance. And in a little bit towards the end of this talk, I'm really excited to talk some about the book of Leviticus because I'm super loving it right now. Uh, and I think that it's a good example of what the historical distance feels like. That it, with Leviticus, there are all these sacrifices of animals, and as we read them, we're horrified because of the cultural and historical differences between that world and our world. And we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but there's two reasons that we have this reaction, that the, the past was terrible and barbaric. And one is, it's that the past was terrible and barbaric, like it really was. 
And in Leviticus, we can see it's a good thing that religion has moved away from that kind of animal sacrifice. In fact, the Bible has taught us to love and value animals, and that's why we've moved away from animal sacrifice as a religious practice. And in the Old Testament, they aren't ordaining women, and as we get through the New Testament, there is an evolution in thinking there, because the past really was a barbaric and difficult place to live. That's a legitimate complaint that we have of the Bible and I want to offer you something, but you have to use it very carefully. I think there are, to some degree, some cultural norms in the Bible that we can ignore. When we make the Bible an authority in our lives, it's not that we are saying, now we have to have animal sacrifice. It's a little bit more of a conversation than that. It's still authoritative. It's still the greatest authority and the greatest conversation partner for your life. The greatest way to have a good conversation with Jesus, and yet, and yet. It's simply more sophisticated than this. So partly it's because the past was barbaric, but partly it's because we are uncritical of the present. If you are, uh, if you are offended by the way that the bulls are slaughtered in Leviticus chapter 1, do you know what happened to the blood of the bulls that you ate this week? But really though, do you know the last steak that you had, what happened to the blood of that animal? And actually, wouldn't it be a little bit more honoring to that animal if instead of slaughtered in some horrible warehouse in the Central Valley of California, that it was part of this ritual in Leviticus? Wouldn't that actually be a better fate for these animals? And so partly we approach the Bible and we're horrified by these historic and cultural differences, but it's really because we are unaware or uncritical of the world that we live in. And so sometimes when we're reading the Bible and we have this instinct of like, I, I want to stop this because bridging this huge historical gap is a little bit too hard. Uh, as we examine that instinct, as we examine that sense of how do we have this conversation, that obstacle especially, I think, uh, doesn't hold up to examination. But finally, and I think this is probably the most compelling obstacle, and it's that we feel like the Bible is just irrelevant. Maybe you've sat down and read it and been like, I am trying here. I'm trying really hard at this, and I just feel like I'm getting nothing. I'm getting nothing. Here's where... The Bible as a conversation becomes a much better way to imagine it. And I want to get into the idea of how do we deal with the perceived irrelevance of the Bible by telling you a story about a volunteer we have over at the San Mateo campus. His name is Mike Chen, and he's a super deep dude. And he comes to me and asks me about Bible verses that he's been reading. Uh, and one time he asked me, Matt, what is the consequence of an incorrect belief? Like what happens if you're just wrong about what you think, about what your worldview is? You read the Bible, you come away with a wrong idea. What happens to you? Like, does God hunt you down and say, you were wrong? Or is there some other bad fruit that it is bearing in your life? And as I've thought about this question, I've realized, you know, Christians, uh, wherever we come from, it can go wrong when we are worshiping an idea or a doctrine or a theology. We don't serve an idea or a doctrine or a theology. We don't serve one biblical passage or another. Really, what we worship, what we are gathered here uh, to pursue is a relationship with a person. And so when we think about that, it helps us to think about this conversation that my relationship with you would be hampered if I had an incorrect belief about you. The consequences of incorrect belief are not that your life will be punished or destroyed. The consequences of an incorrect belief are that our relationship with Jesus it doesn't function as well. And so that's one of the reasons we have to apply ourselves to this. And so the purpose of the Bible, the only purpose of Bible reading, is to participate in this conversation with Jesus. And the author of the Bible is there as a guide, as someone to challenge us, as someone to force us to go deeper in this conversation with Jesus. 
And so sometimes we might approach the Bible asking questions like, how do we disprove evolution? Or personal questions like, is this the career track for me? But those are the wrong questions entirely. See, the Bible is trying to have you, help you have a conversation about how better to connect with Jesus, how to follow Jesus more faithfully. And it asks different questions than we want to bring to it. And so its perceived irrelevance is more that we are asking the wrong questions of the Bible than that the Bible uh, doesn't have anything important to say to us. And so as I've walked through these, you know, these are deeply autobiographical, that I've spent years wrestling with some of these things. And so I'm not just dismissing these out of hand. I, I've, I've wrestled with them. And I just want to convey to you, like, I'd love to talk more about these things. I'd love to talk more about these obstacles, um, if you'd like. I don't want to just dismiss them out of hand, but I do want to talk about how, what are some best practices to have a better conversation with Jesus around the Bible. And the first is that I really think we need to read the Bible every day. Maybe you've never tried that before. I super recommend it. It's funny because I talked about this anecdote last time I was here at Sank, but I had my first girlfriend in the sixth grade. Her name was Jennifer Brown, and every day I went to school and I had one goal, avoid her at all costs. Like, do not talk to her. Do not be in the same room with her. And that is not a functional relationship, right? In any way, deep immaturity, laughable immaturity, and yet, and yet, this is sometimes how I pursue my life with Jesus, is that I'm just going to go days on end, maybe weeks on end at sometimes, never talking. And the Bible, I think, is the best way to pursue a conversation with Jesus, so I think we've got to read it every day. And then, as I said, we have to be more concerned with the Bible's questions about us and our world, at least equally concerned with the Bible's questions about us and our world than we are about our questions for the Bible. See, it's going to ask even more powerful questions of you than you could ever ask of it. Deep, deep questions about the nature of human experience. And I was just thinking about the book of Mark and how I used to read the book of Mark because it was the shortest of the Gospels. And I was like, tell me as much about Jesus as I can with as little reading as possible. But the book of Mark is really about what is the relationship between power and suffering and that is like such a deep, deep thing. And so here I was just like, give me as much like Jesus cliff notes as I can get. But the question that Mark had for me is about why does Jesus, the most powerful being of all time, display his power through suffering? What does that say about the power that you hold in your life? The Bible has deep questions for us. Best practice number three, look at the big picture. If you can name the big idea from one book of the Bible, you're on the right path. And I want to show you how this conversation might work. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, it had a different original order of the Old Testament because they thought these, all these authors have gotten in one room. This is how they kind of imagined it. All the authors of the Bible are in a table, uh, around a table, and they're arguing about who God is. That's what the Old Testament was sort of like. And there were books that they said, nope, this is not a, a scripture. This is an old writing about, the, about God, but we're kicking it out of the Bible because it doesn't reflect what we think is a voice that should be around the table. And they were really careful about who got to sit next to who at this table. And so in the Jewish Bible, Proverbs uh, is a book about this kind of mechanical wisdom about the world. If you work hard, you'll do better in life. Thank you, Bible. Uh, and then right next to it is the book of Job. That even if you do everything right in life, your life can still go horribly wrong. And it can be no fault of your own. And where is God in that? And so whoever arranged this party with these authors of the Bible, they put Job and Proverbs next to each other so that they could have this conversation about, yeah, there's some mechanical wisdom about the universe, that if you work hard, things will work out for you, but there's also this other deeper part of human suffering and, like, talk about it. 
And so if we have the big ideas, if we can summarize the big ideas in the Bible, one book at a time, we're going somewhere with this big conversation. Interestingly, Christians rearranged the order of the Old Testament because they wanted to have a different conversation about who Jesus was. They were changing the topic at this table. Pretty interesting stuff. Best practice number four, study is a spiritual discipline. Man, that can be bad news. Uh, maybe you're in school, maybe you hate school, maybe you're just not a school person, but finding out like what is the difference between a letter in the Bible and a poem in the Bible and a story in the Bible, what genre is what I'm reading, uh, that's going to be a really profound eye-opening thing as you read the Bible. So applying yourself to some study of the Bible. And then lastly, best practice, focus on talking to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm sitting down to read this Bible, not because that guy told me to at Sank but because I want to know you in a deeper way. So please help me as I read this for five minutes. Please help me as I read this for 10 minutes. God, I hate this part in the Bible where you're slaughtering all these people. Help me understand this better. Jesus, I really don't like the way that you say you are hiding the truth about yourself from people. That is confusing to me. Help me understand it. And so as you pursue Jesus through this Bible reading, it has to be this actual conversation where you're actually asking questions to Jesus, to the author of the Bible, and like, why is this in here, and wrestling with it. That, my friends, is a fruitful picture of what Bible reading looks like. So I just want to throw up a few resources. Maybe you're the type of person who is never, ever going to pick up a book on this stuff. That's fine. Uh, but here are a few resources that I have found super useful uh, or insightful or inspiring for this talk. Rob Bell, What is the Bible? So good. Uh, Rob Bell, Blood, Guts, and Fire, an audio commentary on Leviticus. So good. Uh, that one really is pretty life-changing. In What is the Bible? He was sort of saying some things that I vaguely was aware of and, and interested in. But in Blood, Guts, and Fire, totally different take on Leviticus than I've ever heard before. And there's a podcast called Leviticus, LeBron James, and the Elevation of the Mundane. It's one of his podcast episodes. Uh, the one about LeBron James is kind of a teaser of that longer audio commentary. Super recommend it. The Life with God Bible, edited by John Ortberg, so good. And then this is like a big fat textbook about the New Testament, but it's so good. Uh, introducing the New Testament by Thompson Green and Actemeyer. If you want to participate in Bible reading as a conversation, these are amazing resources to kind of give you some, some insights on how you might do that. But I want to I end with two minutes of walking through a big picture idea uh, and inviting you to participate in a particular part of the conversation with God about your own life. I want to talk about priests in Leviticus. And it starts with this in Exodus. Uh, God calls forth the original priests. And it says, after you put on the special clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint them, ordain them, consecrate them so that they may become priests. And if you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, like Aaron is not a special dude. He's kind of a screw up. And that tells us something so powerful about what it means to be a priest already. That even in the Bible, that these were not supposed to be a special class of people, somehow more holy, somehow more insightful. The priests were normal people called to behave, to think in a different way. And we'll get into that in a second. And then in Leviticus, the priests finally get a job. And here's the first job, uh, Levit Leviticus chapter 1. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the bull and splash the blood on the sides of the altar and in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And so this is the regular behavior of the priests. But I want to start by thinking, like, what is a ritual? What is this ritual about? Partly in the Old Testament, you know, in the ancient world, everybody was doing animal sacrifice. 
but it, the, the Israelites believed animal sacrifice was like a meal between you and God. That's the image that they went with. That you sit down, the priest eats some of the meal, you eat some of the meal, God eats some of the meal. It's this conversation. And what's powerful about this is the role of the ritual is to tell you how the world could or maybe should be that you could have this friendly relationship with God throughout all of your daily life. That's why you did these rituals, to remind yourself that God is available like this all of the time. And so the priest become, became the person that simply reminded you of a truth of how your world could be. The role of the priest was simply to stand in two worlds. Here's your world where you feel distant from God. And here is the world how it could be. Come over, live in this one. Let's do this ritual to remind you that God wants to even have a meal with you. Come over this way. And so the priest, it's not really a job. It's not really a special class of person. It's a role. It's a mode of being. You are a priest sometimes for your friends. You say your life is like this, but it could be like this. Your life with God is like this, but it could be like this. We all operate in this priestly mode for each other. And we say, hey, your life, this area, it's like this, but man, it could be like this. It could be so much different. It could be like this. Don't forget, you feel bad about yourself, but God loves you. You feel weighed down by a ton of things. God has forgiven you. You're over here, but you could be in this new world. And powerfully, the Bible continues with this idea of priest. Jesus is described as a priest, and it closes with this idea in the New Testament. Pages and pages later from Leviticus, a thousand pages later, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may de declare praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light, that you all, you all are this kind of priest. You all are given the task of entering this mode of being, this special mode where you tell someone, hey, you're over here in this world, but you should come over here into this new world where God is present all the time. You could be here. And that, my friends, is what we should be doing for each other. And so the Bible is asking this question of us, are you willing to enter the mode of the priesthood, to be this priesthood for everyone so that everyone can know you could be with God all the time? That's the question that Bible has for you. And so I hope you'll think about, gosh, will I, will I read the Bible more frequently? Will I imagine it in this different way? And will I really participate in this conversation with God so that you can know Jesus in a deeper way? Let me pray for y'all. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a God who wants to talk with us. You're a God who wants to talk with us. Lord, and so we offer our heart to you. We say yes to this conversation. Lord, uh, some of us have tried so hard to read the Bible, and it's been so frustrating, and others of us have had long, fruitful seasons of doing that. Lord Jesus, I just pray for a spirit of conversation to fall here, that this would be a group that loves to talk with you. Lord, and I pray for this group as priests to each other, that they would be constantly calling people from one old way of life to a new with God life, that this would be a community of priests that this would be a priestly community saying to the world, look, life could be different. Look how it is over here. Look at the way we love each other. Lord Jesus, so we lift our lives up to you. Thank you. Amen.